So um, if you are new or visiting with our church, let me introduce you to who we are and what we believe. There's three things that we hold dear. First, we believe that there's hope beyond our brokenness. So right where we are, you are welcome in this place. And the hope that God gives us is that you and I can be transformed by the living, risen presence of Jesus. Right here, right now, in the issues that you face, in the grief that you're carrying, in the very practical, real-world problems that you have, even in your greatest moments of joy, there is hope. Fear always paints a future where Jesus is absent and the people that we love are being hurt. And, and then fear says, hey, go ahead and try and solve that problem by yourself. So then we activate pride. Go at it by myself. And we try and solve that problem. How well does that work? Has that worked out any, for anybody here? I would love to meet you. You might be the only one that has it. So we've all, we've all crashed our ship on those rocks. And, uh, and hope says the exact opposite. Hope says Jesus is already in your future. He's already preparing good things for you. He has it taken care of, which means now in the present, we are allowed to bring God our thanks, to bring him our great need, to be honest with him about the beauty that we can offer and to lay that at his feet and also the great poverty that we have and need that we have. So we're allowed to do that when hope exists. And as we do that, that's the, the second thing that we learn how to do is we learn how to trust our risen Savior. Uh, trust is the experience of saying, God, you know more than me. Uh, you are stronger than me. You're greater than me. And I'm actually going to start relying on you in the real world, at the, in real time. I'm going to start bringing to you things that I need. And I'm also going to start listening to you and following your directions. So who here loves to be out of control? Isn't it just, isn't it just so fantastic? I think if you are like strapped into a roller coaster, that's the one time where you're willing to let go just for a moment and we scream and, and, then, we, and then we praise God that that experience is over when we finally get out. And, uh, and trust, the Bible doesn't talk about this a lot, but trust is the experience of saying, God, I'm, I'm going to hand over control to you. And be willing to listen and follow and trust. And when we do that, it's the thrill of a lifetime. But there's also some moments of hesitation. And all of that is normal. That's what trust or faith looks like. Third, we believe that we're called to bring restoration. And if Caleb can bring restoration, Caleb, I said your name. <laughs> I said it when you were walking out the door in a moment of irony, but now I'm saying it. If Caleb and his brother Cody... Two ragamuffin, bobtailed knuckleheads, if they can give away money and make a difference in Jesus' name, amen? amen. So can you. So can you. And, and God is asking you, calling you right now to open your eyes and your heart to the needs of your family, your neighbors, your community, so that you might be able to join the amazing difference that Jesus is already making and already working in the lives of of, all, of us all. Amen? So that's what we believe as a church. So each one of these beliefs has a choice. We say this every week together because we forget every week. Here we go. 
A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God, choosing to be changed by Jesus, choosing to seek Jesus first. And this week's sermon is all about joining Jesus in his resurrection work. We're, we're in the Gospel of John. We've had this incredible um, uh, series where I just love John's gospel. It's absolutely beautiful. Last week, we talked about Jesus encountering a man who had been uh, an invalid. He'd been crippled for 38 years, and he asks him this question, do you want to get well? And then this man um, has to do three things. He has to trust Jesus. He has to, uh, he, he gets healed by Jesus, but then he has to move. He has to leave that place of being sick. He has to leave that old identity that I'm a beggar, that I find my resource uh, on my own. He has to leave that old identity and he has to start trusting that Jesus has, has something new for him. And we, and we read the story about how this guy completely fails at, at this endeavor of what it looks like to actually trust Jesus. He gets healed in his body, but his spirit still wants to live in that crippled place. That was last week. This week, we're going to read about, um, in John chapter 6, about how the disciples are just like this crippled guy who gets healed. Are you ready? Here we go. John chapter 6, verse 1. Let's, let's pray. That, that'd be, we, we desperately need that, right? Okay. Lord Jesus, we bind up and silence everything opposed to Christ that would be seeking to distract us now in Jesus' name. We pray, Father, for your peace, your presence right now. Holy Spirit, we give you permission to speak to our heart, to our spirit, to separate from us that old man that would want to save ourselves, to awaken in us desires and an appetite to trust you, to rely on you. Speak to us clearly today, God, about the decision that we need to make the next step that we need to take is we follow you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. John 6, verse 1, read with me. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. So let's do some geography. Here we have the nation of Israel. Down below, there's the Dead Sea. You can see that big white dot at the bottom. That's Jerusalem. Um, the river going between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee on the north is called the, the Jordan River. And so, um, so Jesus is up in the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus' hometown is in Capernaum. Here's a close-up of the, of the Sea of Galilee. Here's Capernaum, tiny little town. Literally, just, just the smallest little place. There's Capernaum. That's where Jesus had his carpentry shop. And, um, and Jesus is going to leave his hometown of Capernaum, and he's going to walk along the shore. Actually, he's going to take a boat to this town called Bethsaida. Say that with me. Bethsaida. So put yourself in the story. Jesus is known all over this area for his healings, for his miracles. He turns water into wine. He makes parties really fun. Uh, and now Jesus is on the move. Um, you're, you're working in Bethsaida, and someone texts you, Jesus is coming. 
you check on the news, your Twitter feed is blowing up, you get your Facebook notifications, right? There's a local news van out there, Jesus is coming. And when Jesus shows up, like, it's free health care, y'all, <laughs> right? I'm getting a small procedure done on my hip on June 24th, Monday, and, and it, I, I wouldn't need to pay my doctor, if, right? I would just, like, I'm going to go hobbling to Jesus, and he's going to, you know, I'll just be near him. Just, you know, spit on me, Jesus. You know, it'll, whatever, it'll, I'll get healed, right? That's pretty nice. So here they're heading east to Bethsaida, and, and you know Jesus is the guy who heals you, but Jesus is also the guy who makes you feel incredibly safe, but also Jesus is kind of dangerous all at the same time. It's this wonderful combination. And so you, you're, you're, you're running out from the hillside down to the shore to see Jesus. So here's actually the shore of uh, of Galilee, and Capernaum is in the distance, and this is the shore of Bethsaida. At least that's what this image said it was on Google. And now if you're looking for a little boat carrying a bunch of disciples in Jesus, how are you going to pick out which boat is Jesus? Well, verse 2 tells us, and a great crowd of people had followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. So just picture it if you're there. Jesus and his disciples are in a boat. And they're rowing along the shore. And thousands of people are walking along the shore, like over fields, through houses, through barbecues, over fences, in towns, businesses. They're just walking on shore and they're looking at Jesus because wherever he stops, that's where they want to be. Does that make sense? So then Jesus stops at Bethsaida. He gets out of the boat. He walks up to the hill because hills or mountainsides are a great place for a natural amphitheater. He can speak and see over the crowd of people. The sea in Galilee is in the background. Um, so verse 3, read with me. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. The Passover had actually just passed, near as in like it was that time of the year. So last week we read how Jesus had come back down from Jerusalem after Pentecost. That would be uh, late May. And so uh, so. This word near is like in the vicinity of. So actually, this event is happening at this time of year. Isn't that cool? So verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, read this with me. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, why does Jesus ask Philip this question? Well, if you remember back in chapter 1 when we first met Philip, Philip is from Bethsaida. So if anybody's going to know where the Food for Less is or the Trader Joe's is or the Bakeries is, it's going to be Philip, right? So that's a logical conclusion. What's not logical is why Jesus would want to feed thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. That's called compassion and love. 
And as Philip is wondering where the food or the bakery or the food for less is, how do I get there again? We read this disturbing verse, which usually throws us through a loop. Verse 6, read this with me. He asked this only to test him. That's, that's kind of mean. <laughs> now, when you and I think of the word test, right, we think of an exam. We immediately go back to the trauma of school and pop quizzes. Amen? Amen? I was hanging out with Neil and Hunter. Neil just graduated from, from Cal Poly. Congratulations, Neil. Hunter's going to be graduating in the fall. Neil's parents are here, so I promised Neil that I would, uh, he's, he's a great kid. <laughs> Still owe me that money, buddy. Um, and Neil was talking about, well, Neil and I have both had the same experience in college where we show up to our exam and we realize that the exam is on exactly the opposite of what we studied for. Did you ever have that experience in high school or college? It's right up there with like dreaming you go to school with no pants on. <laughs> like I literally had nightmares up until my late 30s, right? That was just two months ago. Uh, where I'm, I'm, I, I'm still, I, I, I show up to class and, and, and I don't, I'm not prepared. Because that's what we think of when we think of the word test. We think of being sort of doing our best and then being told, well, either we're good or we're bad, where we're either worthy or we're unworthy. Um, we've either passed or we failed. We're able or we're not able. Basically, we associate the word test with judged. Okay? But that's not the heart of this word. Now, here is the word in Greek. It goes like this. Pyrazo. Say that with me. Pyrazo. There it is in Greek. There's its English transliteration, pyrazo. It has two definitions. Notice the second definition. It's actually what I just talked about. Test as in for the purpose of ascertaining quantity, quality, or ability. So that's its secondary definition. Its primary definition is quite different. It means to attempt, to endeavor, as in to see whether a thing can be done. So what is Jesus, how is Jesus providing a pyrazo, a test for Philip? What's the purpose? Jesus is inviting Philip to an endeavor, to an adventure, to push and test the limits of what God can do through Philip. Jesus is giving Philip the responsibility, the opportunity, the adventure of doing something absolutely incredible. Who here wants to have a miracle flow through your hands and your life to radically transform the life of another person? Some of you are wisely not raising your hands because you don't want the pyrazo. The test. If you raise your hands, that means you're saying, sign me up for the pyrazo, the test. I want the adventure. I want the responsibility. I'm willing to take on that endeavor for God to do something absolutely incredible through me. Now, research um, 
Wait. I skipped a page. Let me, let me give you a pyrazo, but in the second meaning of the word, a test, like as in the school kind of test. Now that I've explained all that, do you remember what Jesus asked Philip? Don't show the slide yet, John. Do you remember? Where can, where can we buy food? Where can we buy bread? Now, it's not, Philip, will you bake bread for thousands of people? It's not, Philip, I need you to go buy bread for thousands of people. It's not, Philip, I need you to mortgage your house in Bethsaida and liquidate your retirement to buy bread for thousands of people. It's this question right here. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? That's a very specific question. Jesus is interested in literally knowing where food for less or Trader Joe's is. You picking up what Jesus is putting down? Let's see how Philip answers the pyrazo. Philip answered him. Read with me. Sound a little bit desperate. It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. It's like, I don't got 40 grand. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of bread. And that's not the answer to the question that Jesus is asking at all. So before even accepting the adventure or the responsibility of this pyrazo, Philip has seen Jesus turn water into wine. He's seen Jesus heal. But what is Philip's response? Freak out. He thinks that Jesus is asking him to solve the problem of feeding thousands of people. And because Philip can't afford to do this on his own, he refuses to even answer Jesus' question. But Jesus isn't asking Philip to buy the bread. He's just asking where the store is. Jesus is asking Philip, trust me, I look, this is my problem I want to solve. I'm the one having compassion on these people. I want to know how to provide for them. I'm just asking you, Philip, to be involved in the adventure. Now, Philip could have answered, yeah, oh, yeah, we have a food for less. I don't know where we're going to feed all these people, but if you can turn water into wine, you probably can handle all of this. I have a coupon. Would that help? <laughs> he could have said that, but he doesn't. Now, research shows that at the end of our lives, we're not going to regret the mistakes we've made as much as we will regret the opportunities that we failed to act upon. And all of the end-of-life research that's done, yes, people regret the mistakes that they've made, but they've actually had enough time to see that, that God has shaped their character and their heart and, and, their, and their lives. They've learned from their mistakes and they've gotten better as a result of it. Amen? But the thing that gnaws at people at the end of their life, the thing that causes the most angst and anxiety which cannot be solved, the thing that really changes the last months of your life is all the opportunities that you've missed. It's the pyrazos that God gave you, the adventures that he asked you to join him on, 
that you said no to? None of us will ever regret being courageous. None of us will ever regret being generous. None of us will ever regret the moments that we decided to turn the endless hamster wheel of comfort and entertainment off for a moment. And when we got out of our comfort zone, when we helped another person, even when it cost us financially, we will never, ever, ever regret that. That is the meaning of life. That is the beauty of life. That is the heart of a purpose-filled life. What we will regret is choosing to watch Netflix instead of doing that. Amen? Okay, shrug your shoulders. Here we go. Come on, y'all. This is exciting stuff. Here it is. Verse 8. Let's find out who else fails the test. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Hey, look, Caleb, my name's in Scripture. Andrew spoke up. Verse 9. I love how Andrew responds. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Andrew completely fails the test as well. I love it that Andrew, he doesn't volunteer his own lunch. <laughs> he looks at this little kid and he goes, give me that. I found this, Jesus. Even though it won't do anything. Shh. Yeah. Just imagining, like, maybe it's Andrew's youth group kid. I said be quiet. Just stop it. You, can, what can you do with this? I mean, it's like a can of sardines and a couple of pieces of white bread. Like, well, it's barley loaves, so it's whole grain, right? No mayo either. Like, it's just dry, you know? Do you, here you go, Jesus. What can, I mean, and this is worthless. Shh. No, you're not getting it back. But what can you do? I, it's like, it's like Philip and Andrew and I don't know how other many disciples tried to chime in and offer something helpful, um, but it's like they all have the same response as the as the crippled guy last week in chapter five. All of them give excuses as to why they can't say yes to the adventure of following Jesus. All of them give excuses as to why why it is that, that Jesus can't do something incredible. And, and all of their excuses are, are the exact same. It's, well, if I can't, then God can't. Since I'm not enough, then God's not enough. And the moment that I say that out loud, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? In fact, the only person in this entire story who's willing to say yes to the pyrazo, to the adventure, to the endeavor, to the responsibility of following Jesus is a little kid, this little boy who said, I'll give up my sack lunch to see what Jesus can do with it. Let's see what happens. Verse 10, read with me. Jesus said, have the people sit down. So they sat down on the fields, 5,000 men. That means that there's a lot more women and children involved. 
Bethsaida is a pretty big town. It's about the size of Arroyo Grande. Arroyo Grande has about 15,000 people. So imagine, if you will, that the entire town of Arroyo Grande empties out to go listen to Jesus. 15,000 people. Verse 11, then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Since no one will actually tell Jesus where the local bakeries are, no matter how many times he asks, Jesus is forced to feed people with the resources that he's been given, and Jesus can do that. And so he takes the loaves and the sardines or the mackerel or whatever the fish is, and he gives thanks. Now put yourself there. Jesus isn't serving 15,000 people by himself. He's asked the disciples to help. So put yourself there. You watch Jesus give thanks to his heavenly father, and then he gives you a loaf of bread, and, then you, and he says, go feed those thousand people over there. <laughs> oh, okay. So the first person you meet, it's Mark. Hi, Mark, here. And you break the bread in half, and you give some to Mark. You give some sardines to Mark, and then you look down, and what do you see? Your loaf of bread has grown, and your sardine can is still full. And what does Mark say, just like everybody else? Thank you. Thank you. And you just keep on doing that over and over and over and by the time you get to the last person, Mark says, can I have some more, please? And you come back, and you do it again, and again, and again, and again. This word, to give thanks, is the Greek word, eucharistesas. Eucharistesas. It's where we get the word eucharist. Eucharist is what we translate, the Latin is communion. Like when we do the whole bread and grape juice thing on a Sunday mornings, that's called communion or the Eucharist. What it means is giving thanks. That union with God starts with you thanking God for all that he's given you. Isn't that beautiful? So Jesus is teaching us something here. And, and, and it's this, that Jesus' math looks different than our math. Um, our math is rooted in our bent towards scarcity. Scarcity says this, I don't have enough. And this is how Philip and Andrew viewed the problem. 10,000 people minus my resources equals bankruptcy. Right? Jesus, I can't actually do what you're asking me to do. Because I don't have enough resources on my own to do, go do that. You're asking me to love this person. You're asking me to pray with this person. You're asking me to pray. You're asking me to give. Look, I don't have enough money to give because like, the need minus my resources equals me not having enough. All of that is the lie called scarcity. Jesus' math works completely different than that. Here's Jesus' math. Ready? It goes like this. What I have plus the willingness to say yes to the adventure plus Jesus equals? What does it equal? More. Sound more convinced. More than enough. 
Yeah, another author says it like this. Uh, everything minus Jesus equals nothing. And Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Look, Jesus is asking you right now, look, are you willing to join me on this adventure? Will you trust that when you offer me the little that you have, I will make something incredible with it? Will you trust my math that if you're generous right now with your time, with your money, with your resources, with your love, that if you're generous with your forgiveness, that if you initiate reconciliation, if you're the one who reaches out, that if you apologize first, if you love your neighbor, take the risk of inviting them over to your house, that if you care for someone, that if you send that note, that text, that I'll be with you in that, that it won't lead to disaster, but that I will actually take that little offering and I'll make something beautiful out of it. Will you trust me? Can we reject the lie of scarcity right now? Yes. James is on board. Yes. Yes? yes? It goes like this. I reject the lie that I won't have enough in Jesus' name. You ready? I reject the lie that I won't have enough in Jesus' name. How about this one? I reject the lie that if I follow you, Jesus, it'll be a disaster. Right? That's a big one. I reject the lie that if I follow you, Jesus, it'll be a disaster. What's the truth? Mm, I love the truth. I had two friends this week that, that decided to not believe the lie of scarcity instead to follow the truth. Ironically, they both end up driving to Oregon. One said yes, or they both said yes to the adventure, to the responsibility, to the pyrazo that Jesus was inviting them to take. One of my friends, she drove to Oregon to rescue her 15-year-old niece who decided to run away from home and ended up from the Central Valley in Oregon in a really, really, really bad situation. And the niece didn't want to go home to mom and dad, too embarrassed, too ashamed, not a good situation there. So she texted her aunt, my friend, and said, will you come get me? So my aunt, my friend, the aunt, drove nine hours one way, picked up her niece, and then nine hours the next. She's exhausted. She got, you know, 15 hours of sleep in the last week. And now her niece is living at her house. See, she said yes to the adventure. Yeah, she's tired. But big deal. She's literally rescued this precious 15-year-old girl from a lot of harm. She's become a miracle in her niece's life. My other friend drove to Oregon to visit his mom and his sister. Both of them are, are facing really difficult situations. And both, both of my friends, like all of us, when we decide to say yes to the adventure of following Jesus, we're always going to be afraid. We're always going to say, I don't have enough. Look, I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to pray. I don't know what to do. My little measly whatever is not going to make a difference. I don't have enough. What could I possibly do to make a difference? You know, it's just better if I stay home. Wrong! Because when you show up, you're not just offering yourself. You're offering 
Jesus. You don't go alone. You go with God. Remember that Jesus' math works different. So both of my friends are very tired, but they both got to be God's presence for their family members this last week. And one of my friends was group texting us, and they wrote this. Our fear does not stand a chance when we stand in his love. Look, I take a chance to say yes to the adventure. You're not going to have any regrets now. And you certainly won't have any regrets when you die. Because Jesus wants you. He wants you to join with him. Now we could end this sermon right here. We could land the plane and be done. But the story does not end. And the story is essential. It goes like this. Verse 12, when they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. The disciples need to understand that the miracles also in the leftovers. This is why your story is so important. Your story is the leftovers. Your story of how God is transforming your life is the leftovers. Here's a leftovers question. What is God doing in your life right now? I love asking that question because I get to hear that God is alive and working in all these different areas of our lives. Now back to the story. Verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, free health care and free food, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I love this. Mega church, 15,000 people. Everybody's clamoring. Let's elect you to office. We want you to run the country. We want you to run the mega church. We want you to run everything. We want to give you all the power and all the taxes and all the government and everything. Jesus, you run it all. And what does Jesus do? He leaves. He leaves. Verse 16. When evening came, so it's been hours. Just like the sermon. It's been hours. Like, when is this going to end? Right? It's like, oh my gosh. And people are asking, is Jesus coming back? Is Jesus coming back? I still got like this tweak in my back. Like, I'm kind of hungry again. Is Jesus coming back? The disciples are like, we got to get out of here. So his disciples went down to the lake where they got into the boat. They're like, should we leave? Should we wait for Jesus? Should we leave? Should we wait for Jesus? And I don't know, somebody said, probably doubting Thomas, uh, he's not going to come back. Let's get out of here. <laughs> and they set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark. Jesus had not yet joined them. Now, it's fascinating. They just got done experiencing one of the most incredible miracles Jesus would provide. And the entire point of the miracle is this. Whatever you do, do it with Jesus. Right? Jesus is not asking you to do it alone. He's saying, it's my adventure, come with me. And what the disciples do, the first thing where they can't find Jesus, what do they do? Well, I better go it alone. Let's find out how that works out. Verse 18. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. 
when they had rowed about three, three and a half, four miles. I love how detailed John is. They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on water, and they had a panic attack. Anybody been in, in a boat at night with 20-foot waves? I have fishing for tuna and blues off the coast of New Jersey. Now, a 20-foot wave is 20 feet from the top of the wave, but then at the trough of the wave, that means that the total distance is not 20 feet, but 40 feet. In order to have enough wind to create 20-foot waves, it's howling. It's raining sideways. It's screaming. I'll never forget, I'm on this boat, and everybody is vomiting. There's 24 fishermen on it, and everybody's just hugging buckets. It's absolutely miserable. It's 11 o'clock at night. My friend and I, Brennan, are there, and we're just gritting it out. You know, we had like six Dramamine tablets stuck to our necks, and we're going to fish for blues. I caught one fish that night. I puked six times. It was a success. <laughs> but the fishing lights had all these massive lights, like lighting up the back because it's, it's going, and you're trawling you know, with these big chunks of mackerel, hoping to catch a tuna or a blue. And, and the lights are lighting up the waves, and when you're at the top of the wave, you can see out into the ocean. You can see these huge rolling waves, white caps. There's like spray in your face, and it's wind, and just feels like you're like a man, like, yeah! And then you go down the wave, except you're going backwards, ah! down 40 feet. That's from the top of the steeple all the way down. And when you're looking at the lights, they're lighting up this wall of ink black water. And the top of the wave is way up there. And you know what I thought? I'm going to die. <laughs> I caught one fish, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to puke six times. My wife is not going to want to kiss my body. It's going to smell like fish guts and puke. This is a terrible mistake. That's what I thought. Now imagine being on a boat, but there's no lights, and you're still puking your guts out, and you're rowing, 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 and you're like, how far is it? Three miles. How far is it? Maybe three and a half. How far is it? Four. I don't know. John, be quiet. We're not there. We're just going to die, all right? Right? How far is it? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And you just feel like you're going to die, and then all of us, you know, and the sea is a metaphor for chaos because it metaphorically will kill you, Right? not just medical, like it will really kill you. And John is freaking out and everybody's freaking out. And then a figure starts walking on water. And you look in the distance at these massive waves and you see this person walking on the water and you think to yourself, logically, it's a ghost. Like I'm, I'm going to die. Actually, maybe I've already died. Maybe this is hell. And this ghost is walking, like, I, I mean, you are having a full-blown panic attack. And then as this person, this figure, this ghostly form is standing next to you, you're riding up and down the waves, and the ghost is literally, this person is standing on the water. And you're looking up at this person, and they're riding right next to you on the boat, and the wind is screaming and howling and rain is everywhere and you realize oh my gosh it's Jesus and what does Jesus say it is I because it's like howling wind he's not whispering right he's screaming 
It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, in the Greek, it's way better. It goes ego eimi, which literally is I am. It's the same words that God speaks to Moses at the burning bush. I am, right? And then, and then me phobeste, uh, phobia is where we get the word fear. Phobia, it's in the Greek. And aste there is conjugated second person plural. And so Jesus is saying, I'm God. Don't freak out, y'all. Waves, wind, puke, waves, wind. And then there's this amazing moment. Verse 21. Then, 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 they were willing. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. So Jesus steps into the boat. And I don't know if he activates the flux capacitor. I don't know like what happens. But John is writing the story. It, he's so consumed and captivated by Jesus that the waves calm down. And, and it's like they instantly got to where they're going. They got to their safe harbor. They are home. What, what is this story all about? The story is the gospel. Like I, the gospel says this, I'm, I'm more broken than I want to admit. And this is what you and I do with our lives. We, we don't want to join Jesus' adventure. That's for Andy and the staff at the church and for professional Christians. And now poor Mike DeLuca has been suckered into it, right? Like that's, I, I'm not going to join Jesus' adventure. And then all of a sudden Jesus starts dragging you the, into the adventure like the disciples, whether you like it or not. But still, you're convinced, you know what, Jesus yeah, you included me, that's nice and all, but I'm just going to keep on going my own way. And then when your own way doesn't work, when you have Jesus in your life, but your own way doesn't work, you trying to control everything doesn't work, you trying to manage everything and everyone doesn't work, when, you're fi when it's finally killing you and you feel like you're going to drown and you're going to die and you don't know what to do, then Jesus shows up in the middle of your chaos and your mess and you realize the second half of the gospel that you're more loved than you could ever dare to hope. And that's the moment that you and I become willing to trust Jesus with everything. And he always gets us to where we're supposed to be because he loves you, because he adores you, because you're his. Let's pray. God, there's, there's people in this room right now that have yet to say yes to you. So we pray for them. We pray with them. We pray alongside them. Lord Jesus, come into our heart. Forgive us our sins. Deliver us from the evil one. We're willing to invite you into our boat. We say yes today. Jesus, there's those of us who showed up today. We haven't been in church in a long time. We've been trying to go it alone, and it's just not working. And so once again today, we say, Jesus, we're willing. Please step into our boat. We trust you.
There's those of us, Jesus, that we've been beat down by life. We've suffered. We're kind of doubtful that you really care because of all the pain that we've been through. But going it alone isn't working anymore. And so once again, Jesus, we confess you're able to provide for us. You're able to lead us to safety. And we're willing. Please step into our boat. And God, you've given us an adventure, a pyrazo, this endeavor, this amazing way that you want to use us. We know exactly what it is. You've been talking to us about it for months. And so we say yes today. And thank you that we don't have to do it by ourselves, that you're with us every step of the way with your resources, with your love and your presence. God, bless and seal all these good things in the hearts and spirits of my friends here today. Guard them, bless them, fill them with peace. And all God's people said, Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance. That's his delight in you and give you the peace that passes all understanding. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's beloved children said,